spared all of that. How does that make you feel? Disgusted. How does it make you feel? Angry. Nope. How does that make you feel? Fucking angry. No! I promise you complete honesty, and I am giving that to you, and I am tired of you lying to me, Riley Flynn. I've forgiven it time and again, but today is critical for us, and I am finished. Complete honesty. How does it make you feel? Jealous. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fear Response Podcast. We are so glad to have you. This time, we are back for another episode of Midnight Mass. This one is called Gospel, the fifth out of seven. Yes. We are nearing the uh, the climax of the show, and things are ramping up. That's right. Yeah, and another great episode, so we're happy and, and excited to get into it. So, uh, I can start us off here. We start out at uh, Riley's family's house. They're kind of talking about him over breakfast, talking about how he's mm-hmm. not there, but they're kind of giving him some slack and... And giggling over it, uh, the mom and dad kind of acknowledging that he's probably with Aaron. And, uh, you know, mom says, you know what? Good for him. It's a positive moment for the family. They seem to be kind of accepting Riley where he's at. I agree. Especially the dad. And and looking at it that, I mean, he's a full grown adult and not yes. everything has to be bad. Right. You don't always know where he you don't always need to know mm-hmm. where he is. You know, we you can just kind of be happy for him in some cases, not feel like you have to police him, right? Which I think more was coming from dad than mom in the first place, but. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is a bit weird when you live at home as an adult, because I feel like sometimes you can kind of revert back to uh, ch- more like child-parent relationship. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, I think a lot of people, if they have the choice, that's not always something that they live in too long. I mean, everyone's different. But I know for me, you know, having the independence once you reach a certain age is a a very valuable thing. And so when you're kind of on other people's timelines and things like that, it would be hard. So I could feel for Riley, I think, having Mm -hmm. had a lot of independence and chosen to leave Crockett and everything. And now he's back. He probably feels a little under the thumb, right? I'm sure he does. But then we cut to Erin, and she's looking at her phone, and she's had no contact from Riley. So that's uh, that's a question on everybody's mind: is uh, is where's Riley? Uh, and mm-hmm. then we cut to uh, Sarah's house, whose uh, <laughs> whose mom now looks crazy young. Her mom now, Mildred, officially looks younger than Sarah by like at least a decade. It's it's just the hair that's the difference. Like she has the hair and the the voice and the outfit. But it is something like. It, 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 there's something missing like in the chin area in the neck area oh. that she just doesn't look aged up enough <laughs> no her skin is too is too taut that's yes, why that's probably Got too much it. collagen in it <laughs> doesn't like hang and off she, her bones the way it should and mildred has gotten up and gotten some of her old clothes out of a trunk <laughs> and put <laughs> them on because she's ready to hit the town for mass <laughs> yeah for a crazy day on the town I thought, like, she honestly looked like, other than a couple discrepancies, she looked like she was 30 years old. (laughs) She looked like if the legal drinking age in a place was, like, 35, that she was just trying to, like, age herself up to go buy booze. And then we cut to the sheriff's office, and first time Mm -hmm. we're seeing um, the mother of Bull, the local weed dealer. Whose name is actually... (laughs) 
Bill. Whose name Bill. is actually Bill. So it's a point of contention for Mrs. Bull. Yeah, it's pretty sad. He's like, I'm sure Bull is fine. She's like, Bill! I would too. I would feel the same. <laughs> well, imagine like your kid unfortunately turns to a life of crime selling selling drugs. <laughs> and they're like, his name is Doug, but they call him Drug. You know what I mean? You'd be like, yeah, stop it. They call him Drug. And yeah, the, the police say, listen, I'm sure Drug is doing just fine. Wouldn't be a very good alias, I guess, for a drug dealer. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh yeah, he's just my friend. Well, it's always the person, it's never the person you most suspect. Mm-hmm. So, hiding in plain sight. This is this scene is a little bit of dramatic irony as well, because the audience is well aware that mm-hmm. he's he's dead as a doornail, has been for a while. True. Yeah, you're right about that. But what we can what we can see here is uh, things are going awry on the island in a way that people are starting to notice. They don't know where Riley is. They don't know where yep. Bull is. The, things are being brought to uh, to the sheriff's attention. Um, and yeah, then, including um, people people kind of mention Joe and things like that too. And uh, yeah, you know, and it's one of those classic true crime tropes where the people who are maybe less in less uh, exemplary standing in their community, sure. um, like Joe and like Bull, that they're, they're the last ones to get noticed and maybe less attention being paid to their case and this and that. And so that's what the mom is advocating. It She's advocating for him to be uh, cared for the way that he should. Well, and it's a little bit of art imitating life too. I mean, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is uh, that is something that truly does complicate things or... You know, there's a, there's reason to to worry that people who are more transient or anything like that, that if they did truly go missing, mm-hmm. their case wouldn't be taken seriously for some reason or something like that, which is a sad thought. Yeah, and that is borne out. That happens. Like, it's you yeah. know, in, institutional discrimination, which is a big, huge topic to tackle. Yeah, too big for us, that's for too sure. Too big for right us, now. yeah. Not going <laughs> to take a bite out of that one. But I think Mrs. Bowl does say, she's like, when it comes to things like this, we're all supposed to be the same. And I was like, yeah, yeah, true. And good for her for advocating for her son. And she says so in a weird Southern accent, even though I think they're supposed oh. to be in New England. She goes, <laughs> yeah, I forgot that's about not that. supposed to matter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's got like a fancy transatlantic thing going on. <laughs> a little Audrey Hepburn thing. I think she sounds wrong. For the, the or it's like, why, why in, in every... Why in every fantasy property, for example, high fantasy, everyone's got to have a British accent. It just makes yep. them seem like smart, you know, that they, they know things. It's interesting. You know why I think is because they're supposed to be like medieval-y, which makes you think Europe. It does. And these movies that we're watching are in English. So it makes sense that it wouldn't make sense to speak English in a Russian accent for the whole movie. You know what I right. mean? Right. So I, I think I think that's the reason. If they they adapt like the Cimmerillion or more of the Lord of the Rings stuff, they could try like Alabama Tallahassee, um, <laughs> some a, kind of accent like that. Try a, a Florida Panhandle kind of accent. It's fantasy. You could do whatever you want. That's true. I mean, the mind reels. You could do so much. We see um, Mil- Mildred go to try to go to mass and mm-hmm. get a, a big fat hug from. Uh, from Bev Keen, which is everyone's least favorite hug. I think hers too. I got the, did you get that impression that Mildred wasn't too happy to see her? Yeah. All she says is, oh, when she gets yeah. the hug. 
She doesn't say like, oh, Bev, or anything. I'm so glad to see you. She's yeah. like, oh, thank God I've been locked up in my room for yeah. the last year. I haven't had to see you. Doesn't say, Bev, uh, you're great. You're my best friend. She doesn't say that. You want to hear a lie? Yeah, do you want to hear a lie? <laughs> Bev, you're my best friend. She goes, uh, the sheriff also goes to look at Joe's trailer, sees that there's no Joe. Yes. Aaron goes to Riley's house uh, and to Warren on the uh, like on the boat and asks them both, mm-hmm. where's Riley because he's not with me. And Warren goes and tells his dad while Aaron's yeah. looking for Riley. What did you think of dad's reaction to that? Just kind of reflective of their relationship. He just always assumes the worst worst. It's like Riley right. has been MIA for like 18 hours. Like that's not... Crazy. I guess it's it's crazier because it's an island. It mm-hmm. is a small yeah. island. So there's only so many places he could go. But right. like, what if he what if he was seriously just like maybe he did sleep at home and no one noticed, and then he went. Mm-hmm. He's been on the beach ever since. You know, like just mm-hmm. contemplating. Who knows? But he but automatically Ed assumes the worst worst of what Riley might be up to, saying he's thrown it all away. So I guess he just kind of assumes he's on a bender or something? I think so. I think he assumes he must have gone to the mainland on a bender, but I don't know, because the ferry only goes a couple times. Mm-hmm. But yes, I think that he assumes that's what he's doing. And so what did you think of Aaron going to Hassan? What did you think of that scene when she's basically saying, I'm not too sure, but I think maybe Riley's missing? Um. Yeah, so an interesting conversation came up between them here because Hassan does ask, what were you guys talking about when you were last together? very interesting and it it feels kind of like Aaron's like oh we were talking about death a lot (laughs) I feel like that would be a little bit of like a wake-up call kind of moment and of course at the time it made a ton of sense that they were talking about death because her baby her unborn baby had just died so it was Mm -hmm. at the forefront of Aaron's mind and that's when they had chosen to kind of swap monologues. That yes, was that they scene. Yeah, she's like, "Well, sheriff, if you must know, we were swapping monologues <laughs> about death. Would you like to hear mine? I have it memorized." Yeah, he's like, uh, he's like, "Oh, okay, that's normal." <laughs> I did think that was interesting too, because he was clearly thinking, "Well, yeah. that makes me worry about suicide, I, right?" Yeah. And someone and someone speaking about being preoccupied with death certainly could be one of the warning signs for suicide. No question. Yeah, there are so many. Is the hard part, right? There's so many things that could tip you off that someone could be at risk for suicide. So many things that could be a sign. And what I look at is basically you need to have an understanding of that person's baseline. Mm -hmm. to put those clues into context, right? Mm -hmm. So someone who's an extrovert and all this, uh, you know, and and always liking to be around people, getting a lot of energy from that. And then all of a sudden they're on their own all the time. They have a low affect. That's more of a warning sign than a person who's a bit of a lone wolf, likes to spend time alone, is a quiet person. You have to have some understanding of what the person's baseline is for a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a change from normal. Yeah, like this isn't like him. That kind of thing, which is exactly what Aaron is doing, because she's saying, like, he's not been missing very long, but he was supposed to come to my house. He said he was going to come to my house and he didn't. True. So that to her, I think that that um, speaks to uh, how well they know each other, because Mm -hmm. even he says, like, oh, could he have gotten caught up doing something else? She's like, he was supposed to come to my house. That's enough for me to be concerned. But yeah, the idea that they were talking about talking about death is a tip off to Hassan. And Aaron also kind of seems to when he points that out. She seems to internalize that and also you read concern on her face. And there's definitely lots of things that uh, convey someone's 
increased risk for suicide. Some of those mm-hmm. things could be uh, like a tying up of loose ends in their mm-hmm. life, which to just one person, you obviously can't ever see the whole picture. So if you're a good friend of theirs or something like that, you might get a message from them that seems a little bit a little bit strange, a little bit off about your relationship. A little bit final or a little bit summative, you know? Like, yeah, summative, like a goodbye. Um, you yeah. could also see things like they're not, they're making decisions that seem to not be forward thinking, seem to not be future oriented. So something along the lines of moving out of their home and they elect to not take furniture with them. They say, no, I'm not going to, I don't need this furniture going forward or closing out bank accounts or those kind of things. Yeah. Which in the age of minimalism is tough. It's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm moving house. I'm going to leave some furniture for sure because I've got, (laughs) I've developed quite a clutter actually. I agree. And I think one of the one of the biggest warning signs and for anybody listening when you can recognize hopelessness in somebody that's one of the things that might you might pay most attention to right there's Mm -hmm. a there's a sense of hopelessness that you're picking up on and like you said it could mean the person has no hope for the future anything like that but that would be a pretty big risk factor to me Mm -hmm. that i'd certainly want to follow up on and another thing i would uh, say to our audience that is just good information to have is that it is never wrong to ask the frank question. Good point. If you if you have a concern, it is never wrong. It is never dangerous to say, are you having thoughts about killing yourself? Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes in polite conversation, conversations you have with your friends, it feels awkward. It feels yep. like too big of a topic to approach. So some people are hesitant to ask the frank question or there can be a fear of putting that idea in someone's head. And that is just not the case. That's just not the way it works. You're not going to take a completely healthy person who would never kill themselves and then suddenly give them the idea to go do it. That's just not going to happen. So it's valuable to kind of to recognize that asking the question, it could be helpful and take what they say seriously. If they say, yes, I am, then you might need to seek some outside help. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. We in the field, we know kind of some follow-up questions to further determine risk from the point of, yes, I'm having thoughts of killing myself, to uh, to try to understand better what their risks are and how they can be supported. But the average person on the street is not going to know that. So, you know, seek help. There's, there's uh, helplines. You could always walk into the hospital. Like, there's always something mm-hmm. you can do mm-hmm. to get that person help. Yeah, and it might not always seem like it, but there is an infrastructure of support behind Mm -hmm. every person if they get to that level. And I mean, we're speaking from a North American context, but it applies elsewhere as well. Uh, But I agree, you know, even as professionals, we have to develop a comfort in asking that question outright. And at Mm -hmm. first, it's not comfortable for us either. Now we do it every couple of days. You probably do it every day at work, right? (laughs) I do it like every day, twice a day. However, however many patients I have, that's how many times a day I do it. So you do develop a comfort. Oh, absolutely. And I, uh, I'm training a student right now. And that is something that I've been um, framing for them is how mm. to ask those how to ask those questions, because it is it is kind of nuanced in how you want to ask them. Uh, for example, my student asked the other day, you're not having any thoughts of hurting yourself, are you? That's so interesting. Yes. And I and I said to him, I'm like. Yeah, that was, I like that you asked the question, um, but we never want to to give them the answer. Or preface it, yeah. Make it open-ended. Are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? Yeah. Because someone who's not up to talking might just say, yeah, yeah, you're right, if they're just not up to talking. 
Well, and it's interesting for your student because that's probably coming from a place of really hoping they say no. Because yeah. you have to feel like you know what to do next if they say yes. And I remember, you know, in the infancy of my career feeling the exact same way. Please don't say yes. Yeah. And probably asking the question in a way that's like, I really hope you say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or uh, sometimes asking, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? And in their head, they're thinking of suicide. The asker is thinking about suicide. But I say you actually have to make it more explicit than that because uh-huh. someone yeah. someone might have thoughts to cut themselves for example but they're not thinking about killing themselves yeah we, we would call that we would call that nssi right non-suicidal self-injury mm-hmm. and self-injury can be a coping skill for people mm-hmm. and also it could be related to suicide um so it, i agree you got to extrapolate that right so you have to make those things explicit yes absolutely yeah. so uh this conversation between uh aaron and uh hassan is a good one because it uh, it puts all these missing people onto Hassan's radar. So he, as an outsider to the church, has a unique perspective too, and he is now aware that there's a problem bubbling in this community, and he's starting to uh, investigate it. And he's still trying to reassure people too, right? Saying it's probably nothing, mm-hmm. but he also goes to Joe's trailer. He's doing some mm-hmm. sniffing around to try to find out what's going on. I think that's the right call. Me too. I mean, better safe than sorry, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the the right call to, to start by reassuring them, uh-huh. it's probably okay, but I am going to investigate it. I am taking it seriously. And what did you think of uh, Father Paul's sermon? Because he okay, goes, yes. it, we get to see uh, an extended scene of him delivering a sermon. For context, it's Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a pretty important, maybe not quite the Super Bowl of the Catholic faith, but definitely close. So, uh, John, as... Uh, someone who is pretty well versed in uh, Catholicism because we grew up around it. What happened on Good Friday? Oh, uh, Good Friday. Is that the day you eat all the pancakes? <laughs> yeah, that's why it's so good. <laughs> yeah, that's Fat Tuesday. <laughs> so Good Friday is the uh, the day that Jesus was meant to have been killed, right? Yeah, it's the day that he died, yeah. That all prefaces everything for Easter, mm-hmm. Easter Sunday being the resurrection. Yes, he, he is risen. So before he goes up for this uh, sermon, he's all amped up. He's talking to the altar boys being mm-hmm. like, this is a special day, boys. He's all full of uh, vim. And then he goes like up. Like he probably had his get psyched mix on in oh, the other 100%. room. You know what he's I mean? He's listening to like Alanis Morissette. Well, it's different for everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so all excited, goes up and does uh, his sermon, which starts like, okay. But then mm-hmm. he he loses everyone but Bev by the end of the sermon. I think you're exactly. <laughs> yes. Because he ends up being like very terrifying, very intense, and uh, some ideas that really don't sit right with anyone in the audience, particularly Mildred, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. He, he says that God is going to ask terrible things of you. And he seems to, mm-hmm. he's really talking about an uh, Old Testament God here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's talking about the God who asked you to to cut a baby in half and, you know, kill your own child and that kind of thing. Yeah, and he, he likens it to being in an army. And he says, make no mistake, we're in a war. We're in God's army and we're in a war. And the um, war of good and evil? Is that what he must be referring to? I believe so. And And he's saying he's justifying suffering, saying suffering is good because it's mm-hmm. leading us to a good place. And also that when God's will changes morality changes mm. 
and you have to trust your conscience. So he's doing so much rationalizing again to say, yeah, I think I've done some stuff that I thought was bad, but it wasn't bad because mm-hmm. look, God told me to do it. So I need to readjust whatever conscience I have left to understand that I'm doing good things because I'm getting us to a good place, which is eternal life. Mm-hmm. And he's getting angry, right? He's getting, oh, he gets very amped up and it's it's like it's like a speech by Hitler, you know? He's gesticulating, yes. he's passionate, but it's slamming the, the pulpit. And the content is scary. Everyone is left shaken, except for Bev, who's like, Amen. Amen to that. Amen. Trust. Preach. And then yeah, you're right. And then they're walking out. And as far as it's funny, because Sarah went to that service. And so as far as she knows, nothing out of the ordinary. She's never been. Hey, to is one it like before. this every day? I don't know. She does, yeah, she doesn't go. And so she they're leaving and her mom turns around, whips around, and says to her, I don't want you going back there ever again. That's not the man I knew. Yeah, which must be confusing. Confusing to Sarah, but the message is clear. That was fucked up, thinks Mildred, a devout Catholic who gets her communion every single day. She thinks that was fucked up. Yes. And has been seeing this man every single day, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I was wondering because he's clearly, like he's beyond diving in with both feet. He's kind of getting deluded in terms of the mission that he seems to think he's on and what that justifies. One of the things he says yeah. about the war is that, yeah, we're in a war and there will be casualties, a.k.a. Yeah. Joe, right, yes. who he killed with his own hands. Yes. I was wondering if you could explain, because my mind was triggered about it, what mm-hmm. we would mean if we were talking about grandiose thinking or mm-hmm. some, you know, layman terms, maybe delusions of grandeur yep. in a clinical sense. Grandiose delusions are quite common. Delusions refer to um, fixed beliefs that are not congruent with reality. So things that are not true to you or me, but are true to the person saying them. Um, So a grandiose delusion on like a grand scale might be someone saying, I am the queen. I am in charge. Or I get people saying, oh, I had a a religious associations as well. People saying... I am an angel, I am Lucifer, I am, you know, those kind of things. That's the extreme end. Um, Mm -hmm. The slightly lower end of the scale of a grandiose delusion is the person thinking, I am the smartest person in this room. I am the smartest person in every room I walk into. So then you might see, rather than these extremely grand, ludicrous statements of, yeah, I am the queen, I am the king, I am God, uh, you might see something more subtle like, you couldn't possibly understand this. You're not as smart as me. I have okay. mm-hmm. I have X number of degrees. All these women want me. It's just like a little bit closer to the realm of reality, but still just not true. Sometimes people are right. Like that, <laughs> like all the women want me is it, like, I could be right. Yeah, may- maybe you are. There, there are honestly times that it gets kind of funny because you're thinking like, <laughs> okay, this sounds like a delusion, but I guess it's Technically could be true. Yes. So anyway, so those are some examples of some grandiose delusions. (laughs) I was thinking of Father Paul because I think he's just losing himself. And one of the things about grandiose delusions is in some way they kind of put the person at the center of something special. Oh, and he absolutely is. And so that's what he sees. He thinks that he's bringing like salvation to the whole island, maybe the whole world. Who knows? He's like, he thinks essentially that he is a prophet. Yes, you're right. In his mind, if there was going to be another Christian book, it would be about him. <laughs> yeah, like, that's a great example. Yeah, that's the place that he's at mentally. He feels that he is bringing, yeah, salvation to the island and then to the rest of the world 
and because of him and he hears the voice of God, he is so in tuned with God's will that he is the the mouthpiece for God's will. Yes. And can you imagine feeling someone feeling that they have that kind of power? That that's a cult leader, right? Like that is a dangerous person. And I think that's a good allusion to make of the cult leader because one thing about a cult leader is they'll never admit to doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's like if if they have this this idea that makes no sense, they're like, well, it's the will and and it's divine and mm-hmm. and we can't question it. Mm-hmm. And that's where Paul's at, big time. Um, so that's what was making me think. I think you're quite right about your ideas earlier in earlier episodes that a big part of the story is like Father Paul's fall from grace, mm-hmm. that he didn't necessarily start as a bad guy, mm-hmm. but he's a really bad guy now. He's a bad and guy And he now. hasn't realized it. Yep. So then we see jump scare surprise, knock, knock, knock at Aaron's door. It's Riley. Mm-hmm. And he seems in good health. He's, he looks totally fine. So she rightfully says, like, what the fuck? Where were you? Like, you terrified me. And he basically kind of like quashes that, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, just trust me. Please come out in the boat with me into the mm-hmm. middle of the water, right? You've done it before. I need you to do that right now. Mm-hmm. And again, this just like speaks so much to the deep level of trust in their relationship that mm-hmm. she says yes, because... In, in a lot of, you'd be like, no, tell me now. I'm not going in the boat with you until you tell me. But she has enough, she has enough positive regard for Riley that even though he's asking her this ludicrous thing, she thinks he must have a good reason because I know Riley and he's a good guy, basically. Mm-hmm. And You're so right. she's, she trusts him enough to do that. And then uh, I wrote uh, in my notes here, they get out in the boat, annoying monologue about campfires. So... Oh, Another the campfires monologue. He says, oh, I, you know, I used to look at the stars and think that they were campfires. and Primitive man. What are those people doing up there? Yeah. What are those yeah, people he's, doing he's up there? Lecturing Aaron about primitive man, which he has no idea about. He's just like pontificating, right? Yes. And Aaron's like, needs this vital piece of information. What the fuck happened to you? And he's like, no, this first. Let me tell you about these campfires first. Hey, did you ever think that cavemen might have thought that stars were bonfires? Because I think they probably did. Yeah. Have you ever had a dreams that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so. <laughs> <laughs> so following the because we cut away from the boat, right? He basically says, "I'm going to tell you a story, and, and I need you is. to hear yeah. it." Right. And we cut right to him waking up. Uh, alive on the floor with Father Paul kind of crouching over him, basically breaking his neck back into place, right? Yes. Uh, and then Father Paul tells him a story about his sister with polio. And I was like, oh, Who died? God, these stories. <laughs> all the time. Did I ever tell you that I had a sister? And, uh, like, and he's so like intense and like, oh, it's so funny. All that to say, Father Paul admits that he used to be very afraid of death and and still is. And that's part of what brought him to the church, right? That he was trying to find a way to understand, but also to maybe feel more comfortable with the idea Mm -hmm. of death. And he tells Riley also, God has a plan and it no longer involves death. So (laughs) we don't need to be afraid. And that's just such a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an expert either. But so many of the things that Paul talks about and justifies he should know based on reading the bible just like hassan said Mm -hmm. that's not the way it works you know what i mean like that's not the way it's supposed to work so much of this show just feels like 
Hassan is the only person with his head on straight <laughs> about religion, which is a really cool place to take it because so many characters yeah. in this story consider themselves devoutly faithful, religious, and probably would say that they have a good understanding of their faith, but it, mm -hmm. they're so easily blinded to the true meaning of uh, the teachings of the Bible, right? They're so easily took in by, taken in by Paul and by Bev and what mm -hmm. they're saying. But Hassan's like, no, you don't get miracles doled out to you because you go to this tiny church on this island. That's not how That's it works. Right. He is such a cool perspective. You know what he's like? Because we just, just did our uh, Cabin in the Woods episode. <laughs> he's with Marty? The, uh, with the great uh, Kate Thompson. <laughs> but yeah, he reminds me of Marty. It's like Marty was smoking the weed, so he wasn't being affected <laughs> by the machinations of the evil government agency. And, and Hassan, he's not smoking weed. He's Muslim. But he has a good <laughs> understanding that some of this stuff going on with the Catholic doctrine and the way it's being used ain't right so I, I think yeah. yeah he's such a cool character he's, he's got enough of an outsider perspective that he he can see he can see the forest for the trees yeah great point he's not lost in the sauce mm -hmm. like all these other guys like are they're lost in they're lost in the sauce literally and figuratively <laughs> so then after he gets woken up you know unceremoniously by getting his neck cracked back into place by Father Paul, Riley immediately says, fuck this, and tries to get out of the rec center, starts mm -hmm. burning instantly. Because it's daytime. Father Paul brings him back in. Yes, because it's daytime. The sunlight is burning him quite badly to the point that for the rest of this scene, he has blistered marks all up and down his arms. Like, he is pretty significantly burned. Mm -hmm. And Father Paul basically tries to sit him down and he says, we're having the meeting. He's so self-important. So he wants to do AA still. He starts with the prayer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Riley's like, he, he wants to start with the prayer of serenity. And Riley's literally like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes, are you and he's fucking like, kidding nope. me? Uh, and yeah. he says, I, I'm promising you true honesty today. Like he starts to get intense mm -hmm. again, Father Paul, right? Yeah, um, wonderful actor. So great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hamish Linklater rules. He's awesome. So, he's so good. And he's like captivating. Every oh, minute yes. he spends on screen, you're you're like on tenter mm -hmm. hooks, right? He is a scene stealer every time. <laughs> that that's him. <laughs> um, and then we get this story where uh, this is Father Paul's version of honesty, where he tells a long story to elicit one point, <laughs> uh, which is the typical the, old man. The story, yes. <laughs> the story of a an altar boy who brought him a mouse in a box that was dying. And then Paul gave the mouse back to this altar boy, seemingly healed. And that act sustained the altar boy's faith into his adulthood. And Riley, of course, recognizes that this story is about him and that he gave mm -hmm. that hurt mouse to Monsignor Pruitt. Mm -hmm. And so he rightfully says, how do you know that story? And feels manipulated. Why are you using this story that I know is about my childhood? Why are you using this against me right now? And so Paul is then, you know, very annoyingly going, you know, you, come on, you know, you know what it is. And so the even more is, annoying, he says, do you have to feel my side where the spear went in yes. because I'm as good as Jesus compares himself to Jesus <laughs> in the most literal way possible. Yes. Like do literally. You need, do you need to put your your fingers in in the nail holes? Do you need to touch my side? Mm -hmm. Like so that is for those people who weren't raised Catholic. Um, so while Jesus was on the cross, obviously he had nails through his hands is the idea. 
Although they think more likely when people were crucified, it was probably through the wrist. Because if it went through their hand, it would just, anatomically, it would not be enough to hold an, an entire person's weight. Makes um, sense. So anyway, so uh, <laughs> he also was stabbed in the side by a spear. And so after he was risen, doubting Thomas, did not believe that he was Jesus. And so he had to feel the wounds that he knew Jesus uh, incurred while on the cross. So that is what this is in reference to. And there's a lot of Doubting Thomas references. There's like a hymn that plays behind some scenes with Riley in it that is about Doubting Thomas. Oh, wow. Yeah, like when he's walking through the town later and looking at everything, how it's beautiful at night, like with his vampire eyes, Doubting Thomas, like a hymn is playing that whole time. Mm -hmm. What did you think? I wanted to ask you too. So Father Paul did recount that story of when he was Monsignor Pruitt and it was Riley who brought him the mouse. And he said, well, could Jesus resurrect this mouse? Like Jesus was resurrected basically. Mm. And so Father Paul, Monsignor Pruitt, tells him to go away for three days and come back. And in that time, he disposes of this mouse. He puts it out of its misery, Mm -hmm. finds a new one that looks like it. What do you think about that? Like, do you think that that was a wicked thing to do? Do you think it was a good thing to do from Monsignor Pruitt's perspective? I don't think it was wicked, but I think that it is a microcosm of um, Father Paul's whole problem, his whole hubris. His hubris, yeah. He he feels like his his actions are are justified and tricking this kid is justified to get the point across that he wants to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's I think it's misguided and not wicked. I agree with you, and I think Riley A got wise to it at some point. Of course, right? he did. <laughs> he he says, "Well, that wasn't an act of God." You know what I mean? Oh God! And then yes, and then Father Paul says, "Well, but wasn't it? Because the fact that it sustained your faith isn't that such a good thing?" And because he thinks that objectively having faith must be a good thing, but it- true. However, you get there. Yeah, exactly. However you get there. But Riley disagrees and said, no, it wasn't an act of God. Why, you know, why, why is that such, such a special thing? And this leads Father Paul to his next question, which is he's trying still to prove to Riley that God is influencing him. God is working through Riley. Um, and so he says, what brought you back to the rec center that night that the vampire killed him? What brought you back? He's like, did you have a calling? Did you have a gut feeling? And he says, no, I realized that you lied about Joe mm-hmm. Colley's sister and that's why I came back and what a what a punch in the gut to Father Paul and then yeah he says I, I knew that you lied about Joe mm-hmm. right and then Father Paul still kind of starts to like it enters the spin zone immediately <laughs> <laughs> and he's like well even by telling a lie I guess I did a good thing because here you are Father Paul obviously we've established he's delusional mm-hmm. I think he's also quite narcissistic mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like he, he thinks, he thinks can't that do anything wrong. he might do, it's it's that it's what he's compelled to do by divine intervention. So he can't make a misstep. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh well, wasn't that interesting? How God worked through me to make me speak a lie <laughs> to cover my own ass, and yeah. that brought you to me. Like this is amazing. Oh, that God works in mysterious ways. He can't take perspective at this point, and no. for that reason, he has no empathy at all. Because he can't understand another person. And I think that that would be a really difficult pill for Father Paul to swallow to hear that. If someone said, hey, Paul, you have no empathy. Yeah, he thinks he is do-gooder extreme, but he's not. He's an asshole. (laughs) He's he's awful at this point. And he's explaining to, to Riley why it's okay 
that he killed Joe. This this whole next part, I think, is so despicable and disgusting. That's the word I wrote down. He's preying on like poor Riley, who is he is suffering for the bad thing that he did for the wrong that he has done. He is suffering and he is bearing that because he knows he should and and that that is the Mm -hmm. right thing to do. And Father Paul is dangling in his face. I don't feel guilty. Isn't that a kick in the pants, Riley? (laughs) Like It's so nasty. You could be like me. I thought it was absolutely disgusting. And he says, yes, it is. You know what? Joe was beyond repair because of what the community put him through because of the accident. So he's claiming that he was dispensable, which is gross. And I really hated hearing that. It, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. How how could he ever have played at, oh, I'm so proud of you for changing your substance use habits, Joe. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, he thinks that he is completely valueless. It, clearly. As a soul, as a human soul on earth, he thinks has absolutely no value. And he says, he worked through me to kill him. Like, yeah. it makes me feel sick to hear him say that, honestly. God had me kill this suffering alcoholic man he had me kill him and that's a good thing it's just what a horrible twisted backflip he's doing in his head to make it seem right Mm -hmm. to himself and again we and we've already said it's just like it it hurts as a viewer to see people valuing joe's life so cheaply yes especially with what what we saw of like in some ways his his strength of character the effort he was putting into doing better the guilt that he felt for what he did to lisa you know, there's so mm-hmm. much, there's value in every human life, period. There, There's so much value that we got to see from him. I, I agree with you. So they're really sowing the seeds that they laid early on, I think. Yes. Right? Oh, they're, yes, they're reaping what they sowed. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Reaping, they're they're harvesting sowing. it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that uh, when Riley says, he says, what the fuck was that thing about the vampire? The, it's something comical about the way the line is delivered of, it was an angel. And Riley's like, what the fuck? And I said, Aunt May? Aunt May? Aunt May? Is that an angel? <laughs> We've had multiple <laughs> Sam Raimi Spider-Man references. That's great. It's almost as if it made a big imprint in our childhood. Uh, almost, almost like that. <laughs> and after that, Bev inserts herself, as she always does, mm-hmm. just kind of like peeking her head around the corner, pretending she just thought maybe she'd come check on mm-hmm. what's going on when really she just wants to be in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Paul, I wanted to throw up. He's like, ah, Bev, right when you're needed, as usual, God oh, bless. God. Like, he's love yeah. bombing her, I'm pretty Ugh, sure. Like, he's just kind of, I would say, love bombing her. Yeah, and I would see it um, sometimes described in some of the diagnostic criteria of certain mm-hmm. mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. But basically, we're talking about lavishing people with affection or praise or attention, mm-hmm. especially if it's a means of kind of changing their mind, manipulating them in some way, something like that. So that's what I'm seeing him do with Bev here, because I think he mm-hmm. kind of is sick of Bev's shit too, but he yeah. knows that she's a true believer, right? Oh, she she is a wonderful henchman to him, and he can't, he can't <laughs> <Yes>. lose her. <clears throat> and then what they do, they put Bev in front of Riley, because he explains, you're, you're to your peak self, you've been changed. They put Bev right in front of Riley, and he can mm-hmm. see her blood pumping beneath her skin, and he's desperate to lash out, but he's doing everything he can not to. They move her closer and closer yes. and closer, right? 
Yes, what a, uh, and again, just so disgusting because they want to bring him down to Father Paul's level and say, you're just the same as me. And so... Oh, great point. They're they're taking him at his hungriest, his most confused, Mm -hmm. making the situation higher tension, higher tension, higher tension to see him snap, even though he doesn't, he's done everything he can to resist it so that they can say, see, you're just like me. You would have killed Bev if I wasn't holding on to you. Meanwhile, no, because he would have made the decision to get away from Bev. Like you force yeah, you force forced. this situation. I think it's a good example of something we've spoken about a little bit before. A, a good example of an urge or a compulsion or even an mm-hmm. action being ego dystonic, right? Mm-hmm. Riley's compelled and, and really uh, is being drawn to do something he absolutely doesn't want to do. Absolutely. So his body's almost betraying him, and I think that that's a really good um, allusion to the addiction. Yeah. And they brought it to his breaking point, and and <laughs> just just to say, yeah, see, yeah, you're just like me. You're you're weak, just like us. We're all we're all the same. And then Father Paul says, "Hey, that's not your fault. Your body was acting on its own." Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that well, that was kind of uh, so. That would be along the lines of like the disease model, mm-hmm. in terms of a way to conceptualize addiction, right? Um, but that doesn't relieve you of your responsibility to control your actions, right? Which is the point that Paul's missing. I feel like that is one of those dangerous, one of those dangerous kind of conclusions that people make. For example, with the idea that, okay, in the animal kingdom, rape happens. Like forced sex happens in the animal kingdom and we're animals. So doesn't that make it okay? You know, it's one of those horrible uh, conclusions that people come to that's twisting the, the evidence available to justify their own worst impulses. Sure. But the fact is, like, we are humans. We are, we've put ourselves above that. We have cognition that is different than other animals, and so we have a responsibility to behave differently. Yeah. Or the idea that um, we are a big man being angry should be, and hit someone, saying, like, well, what could I do? I was mad, and I wanted Mm -hmm. to. Uh, and I have a lot of testosterone. And isn't that a scientific thing that makes me more aggressive? And acting as if that's an excuse. And there's something in the legal code for that. It's called crime of passion. It's acting as if it's an excuse, you know? Yeah, that it alleviates you of your responsibility, yeah. which it does not, right? He keeps talking about Joe. He said, my will became his and Joe was taken and I was sustained. But like you said, mm. got no guilt, mm-hmm. right? Which again it's proof that paul's an asshole not that he's exactly exactly (laughs) as if not having the moral scruples to feel guilt over doing something bad means that it must not be bad Mm -hmm. it's like no go home and reflect why don't you feel bad when you should yes i think it's something too that we've spoken about before he's starting with his assumption and then he's Mm. seeking evidence and so Mm -hmm. you know that's a really common intellectual fallacy that a lot Mm. of people might struggle with and and we might call it confirmation bias Mm -hmm. right but if you've already got a conclusion in your head it's it's easier to find the evidence for Mm -hmm. that right and so if you're not scrupulous you can discount anything that flies in the face of your argument and notice the things that you know, really confirm your argument. It's almost like if you've ever had the experience of buying a certain model of car and then all of a sudden you feel like you see them everywhere. (laughs) It's not necessarily that those cars weren't around until you bought one. Mm -hmm. It's until you bought one, you didn't didn't notice them. Yeah. 
there's just another car yeah right or like when we when we have funny things like noticing the the time one two three four twelve thirty four my favorite time oh i feel like i notice that all the mm-hmm. time you check the clock yeah. a thousand times a day <laughs> and you notice when it's twelve thirty four. like exactly, it's just really interesting exactly. you also checked it when it was twelve thirty one, but you just that and didn't, you didn't uh, even remember didn't remember i was about to say you didn't clock that which would be funny um <laughs> <laughs> wasn't clocking so he, he then turns the knife here. He twists the knife and he says, hey, Riley, you killed somebody. What about oh, that? Yeah. And tries to spin it in, again, just yucky, yucky way, saying there's meaning in that girl you killed. There's meaning there as if it was right that she died, that she was preordained mm-hmm. or predestined to Part die. Part of the plan. That her death is the death of a young girl who had people who love her that is a good thing because of where you're at riley like what a yucky yucky justification and he kind of gets in his face right and he's like how does that make you feel oh well yes because then riley is arguing back says no it was run-of-the-mill it was ordinary it was a horrible thing that happened by a horrible accident i didn't touch the brakes it was and he's taking again what we always see from riley he's taking full ownership of what he did but we also know that it was not intentional. It was predictable mm-hmm. because he was driving drunk, but it was not intentional. Mm-hmm. And then Paul keeps at him. Like you say, he's getting in his face. He says, you feel guilty. And how does how, and I don't. How does that make you feel? Riley says, disgusted. I know. I like, I like celebrated when he said that. I was like, yes, exactly. It, ma- it makes me feel disgusted that you don't. I know. Riley has really impressive strength of character as well. And then Paul again says, no, that's not the truth. Tell me the truth. How does it make you feel? Wonderful performance, Hamish Linklater, screaming in Riley's face. (laughs) Riley, crumbling under the pressure, says, it makes me Mm -hmm. feel jealous. And this, this, I think Paul feels that this is a gotcha moment. I I, I have the same notes. Okay, but I think, no, it can be both. Of course, we would like to not suffer for the guilt that we feel. No one likes to suffer. So, of course, Riley can feel envious of the fact that this person is sitting there with no, you know, with no suffering from his guilt. But he's also disgusted because Riley is Mm -hmm. a better person than Paul is. And he is willing to undergo that struggle because he knows that it's right to do. And that's exactly what I think. Mm -hmm. I I think that, yeah, he is disgusted. Paul wasn't willing to accept that as Mm -hmm. honesty. And he keeps pushing him and he says, okay, yes, I feel jealous, but you can feel both. You can feel more than one thing about a situation. And Paul is like, Eureka, we got there. Finally, we we can get rid of that silly thing you said about being disgusted by me. (laughs) We know that you're really jealous of me. (laughs) Yes, I know you're just jealous. That's honestly, yeah. Paul's like, hallelujah. We got got the conclusion that I wanted. And I orchestrated to get exactly this because it's what I want. And all that matters is what I want. Bad, bad guy he is. Do you remember how we were talking about him in the first few episodes? I, I really liked him. I know. And now we're like, what a despicable, disgusting worm he is. Oh, God, you're right, too. There's a few more things. He says, you need to have courage. God's chosen you. Mm-hmm. Bev is all upset. She's like, I just don't think he's valuing what he's been given, Father. And I just, <laughs> yes. and it's like, Shut and up, then Bev. he says, yeah, he does. He says, Bev, it's immaterial, which is like, kick rocks, Bev. Shut the fuck up. Honestly, yeah, Bev, shut up is what he might as well have said. What you're saying is immaterial. He says, what, you sh- what you're saying does not matter. It'll be like my kids. Oh, he almost said shut up to me. Okay. If I say anything along the lines of like, you need to be quiet. 
<laughs> almost said shut up. And then we see um, Bev brings out Sturge, who has a bound arm. It's bandaged. Yes, yes. And he basically donates blood for Riley to drink, right? Yes. And my the way that Bev's behaving, my note is Bev is so mad and so jealous. <laughs> so then, yes, this donated uh, chalice, Riley drinks it hungrily as, you know, mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. he would in his shoes. And then that makes him feel disgusted with himself and bad and yucky. Yeah. But he's, his hand is being forced so much here. Well, I was wondering, that made me think about, remember when we were in school and they told us that people were going to tell us we weren't cool unless we did cocaine <laughs> and like try to make us do it, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of what I was thinking. Like they're basically forcing him and he's basically got a chemical addiction to this stuff as well. Yes, it would be, yeah, it would be like making someone addicted like physically to something and then dangling mm-hmm. it in front of the, their face. You know, it'd be like kidnapping a person getting them addicted to a substance and then saying, here's that God. substance, maybe try it. Yeah, maybe you like it. And see, look, hey, you used it. You're just like me. Oh, yeah, you're you're bad. You're bad, Riley. Okay, so Paul, Father Paul evokes the serenity prayer again and basically accept the things I can't change, change the things I can. And that just made me think, like, Paul's a fool. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand that mm-hmm. stuff himself. No. Right? He is trying to muck about with things that he has no control over and it's, you know, blowing up in his face and he doesn't even see it, right? And another thing with consent, obviously consent's out the window in regards Mm. to Father Paul, Mm. but how can he think that he's bestowing upon people the gift of everlasting life when they didn't do the thing, they didn't choose to do the thing they needed to do to get it? Mm -hmm. Like, again, not the way these things work in the Bible, that he he could secretly buy them eternal life without them even making a choice that Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense not how religion works no and then after riley drinks the blood father paul's like do you feel at peace do you feel Mm -hmm. peaceful now that you've done that and he does but it's picture picture abusing morphine yeah he feels his hunger is sated that's why so i thinking like picture someone who is abusing morphine like yeah they're gonna feel peaceful for a moment after they take it (laughs) It's the way the drug works. And, and for him, mm-hmm. he was having a terrible hunger that he couldn't understand. And mm-hmm. like you say, he satiated it. Of course, he's feeling more at peace because of that. Yeah, it relieved his horrible discomfort. So yeah, he feels better. And But also emotionally, I feel like this is just Paul beating him down to his lowest point and then essentially saying he's broken, he can go. I think that he thinks that he broke him down yeah. so he can go. And that's... and He's Beth, one of us now. Yes, exactly. Like... Almost like we got him to part. It's you know like uh, like in organized crime. It's like you make them participate in a crime so that they can't go and rat on you because they're a part of the crime too. Like that's what they just did to Riley. Good point. And then Bev still is like, I don't think he's ready. And you know this is actually interesting because this is almost like Bev is seeing Riley's true colors. She is recognizing his strength of character, but she sees it as a bad thing. Yeah, he hasn't accepted the gift. Yes, she sees him as kind of like rebellious in a bad way. But what she's actually recognizing that we can see is Riley's strength of spirit, that he's going to actually go out and be a risk to what Bev and Paul have going on, even though Paul doesn't even see that. So Bev's actually got his number in the right way. You're right. And Paul's encouraging him to go feed on other people and Mm -hmm. give them his blood as a gift. Yeah. Right? And obviously... um, He says you will give in to the urge to eat. It is the voice of God. 
Um, I felt really bad because he goes home. I think that Riley already knows what he's going to do. Yes, I think he's so walking too. around. He's got new sensorial uh, experiences. He can mm-hmm. see the lights differently. Uh, the really beautiful shot of the way that the vampires see space. Mm-hmm. Um, but he goes home and he just kind of looks over his parents. And I felt really terrible mm-hmm. that he didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them or yeah. to Warren. So he's just kind of passing through the house he sees them doesn't doesn't speak to them and then he yeah. goes to Aaron. like he's already dead which i guess he kind of is mm-hmm. he's like a ghost so that was just really sad to watch poor riley mm-hmm. and then he so he like you say he can't talk to them so he leaves notes for them and flashes back to the boat where he finishes telling that story to aaron right okay and so this is you know again just great interaction between them she says did you? Because t- mm-hmm. she's heard the most ludicrous story ever, so of course she's very calm and says, "Did you tell me that to scare me or what?" But then she says, "But I know you didn't do that because I would never be scared of you." And what does she say? She says, "Dear you" or something. Oh, she's just so frank. They're so frank in their affection for each other. Like I know. Oh, it's so sweet. But I don't find it. I I feel like it's earned this relationship between Mm -hmm. them and the way that they interact. I don't feel like it's too sweet or too sentimental. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's just right. Like they do have this relationship. So she says, she says, I am not scared of you. I will never be scared of you. I will help you with whatever you need help with. And he's like, well, I hate to break it to you. (laughs) Well, and and you're right. Cause she says, if you're sick and you need help, Mm -hmm. I'll get you the help you need without judgment and without fear. And I just thought like, Ooh, it's, it's like, it's hard to listen to, but if we could have a person who was mentally ill and someone mm-hmm. had that same approach to them, it would be such a, a helpful thing to hear, right? Absolutely. And, and addiction too, of course. So it's just like, ooh, that was tugging on my heartstrings big time. Very profound response from her. It is. If everyone had a person like that in their life, you know, they, the world would be a much better place if everyone could support them that way. And you could just picture if like, your kid or your parent or your partner were wrapped up in addiction or were really struggling with a mental illness that, you know, just sticking by them and saying, even though it's scary, you know, I'm going to help you. Like, wow. uh, Yeah, saying judgment or fear because I think that, for example, Riley's mom, she she might not judge him because she loves him and she still thinks that he's good, but I think she would be Mm -hmm. afraid. She wouldn't want to accept it. She would be fearful. So... I think she'd be almost in denial about the problem a little bit. Exactly. So Aaron is just the right answer. (laughs) And then, and then he's, he responds to her and, and we can see also that he can, he can see her neck pulsing as well. So for a moment, Mm -hmm. the audience thinks, uh Oh, maybe Aaron is in trouble, but you know, we shouldn't have even thought that because we, we see Mm -hmm. right, right afterwards. He says, no, like I brought you here and I'm so sorry. I brought you here to see what's going to happen so that you'll believe me. And knowing how traumatic it's going to be for her he's like i'm so sorry that I, mm-hmm. it has to be like this but i think it does for you to know and tells her i want you to get away i know you're going to try to help people but selfishly i riley want you to get away because i love you basically oh this is so good i want you to run but i believe you're gonna row back there and do everything you can to try and save them I'm just so sorry you have to see this. Then he says, I did my best. Oh, I did my best. I'm going to cry right now. I did my best. I know. Oh, it's so sad. Like, in his life, he did his best. And it wasn't enough. He's dying young. Oh, I'm going to cry right now. 
<laughs> I know, it's really sad. Oh my oh, god. Oh, it's so sad. He sees a vision of terror, right? Yes. So we see from Riley's perspective, we know that he's caught fire, basically, or we can anticipate that because we see that the sun is up. But we see like Riley's perspective is that um, yes, hmm. he sees he sees Tara. It's it's interesting because it's almost like he can finally fully accept what he did because he knows he did his best, I guess. Something like that. But it's heartfelt and touching regardless. <laughs> big time and hopefully and it, and it seemed peaceful but then it's such mm-hmm. a saint mod moment it, it's saint mod right? for sure it's 100 percent saint mod because he's all peaceful and he's seeing things in one way and we cut to aaron who's watching him burn alive Her and she's friend. giving the actress is giving it 110 <laughs> percent and it goes oh all my god through, all through the credits all you hear is like ah like all through oh, the credits geez. like it's um, uh, is it is it Catherine siegel Kate, yeah, so probably Catherine. Kate, yeah, Kate Siegel, 110% on that shot. She's like She's in agony too. and terrified. It yes. was amazing. It's- and it's such a hard cut to that because yeah. everything's all peaceful and serene. And it's like, poof, you get hit with uh, the reality of what's happening. Oh, wonderful amazing. episode. Can't wait to talk <laughs> about the next one. Oh, I had to pause. I was going to be fully crying. I was about to be fully <laughs> crying about the I did my best. Oh. Oh, I know you just feel so bad for him and, and he was he was clearly a good person. Yes, so let's give it up for Zach Guilford's performance again. Yes, oh my god. In just a it handful of episodes, because this is obviously where we leave him and there's still a few episodes left of this season. And I mentioned this in another episode, but I, I read a review that called it soulful, his performance. And I think sure. that, that is yeah. so I think that, that is so true. He's like the emotion that he conveys for such a complicated character is like so good. Oh, so it's so heartbreaking. This poor guy. I know it's like goddamn Mike Flanagan. Yeah, he tried needs his to, best. Needs to be tried for his crimes of making <laughs> yeah. me so sad. We should we should for embarrass embarrassing me with how often I cry at his show. We should send we should send him a letter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. We'll send him a letter. We'll cut some letters out of magazines. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, ransom note style. And then then Kate's like, oh, another one, Mike. (laughs) That was our review of episode five. It's incredible. It is. Yes, it is. We do get some horror elements, but like we said, we also uh, reap a lot of the little seeds that were sown in the early episodes Mm -hmm. where we see a lot of things kind of come to fruition. And unfortunately, we say goodbye to Riley. We do, and like, what an end. What a wonderful end to his storyline. Yep, absolutely. So, good. so we'd like to thank you guys so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, we'll ho- hope you'll come back for the next episode. All right, thank you. Bye. I did my best.